You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be joined by Dr. Jasmine Zane, hematologist-oncologist at City of Hope in Duarte, California. For those who may not be familiar with you, Dr. Zane, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and telling us what brought you to the field of medicine, specifically hematology-oncology? My name is Jasmine Zane. I work at City of Hope in uh, Duarte, California as a hematologist and transplant physician. And basically, I've been doing this almost 25 years now. I've been doing lymphoma therapies for about 20 years, so I'm very familiar with this area. I actually got into taking care of patients with CTCL very early in my career. I had just finished my fellowship and started my first job at the University of Connecticut where they wanted to set up a CTCL clinic, uh, a multidisciplinary clinic that uh, we will be talking about later in this uh, episode, where a dermatologist and a hematologist work together to take care of patients with skin lymphomas. I was very green, didn't know anything much about this other than what I had learned in fellowship, and I said yes. Uh, Usually these things fall to the junior most person and that was kind of the start of this uh, really long and wonderful journey and I've just continued to have opportunities wherever I work to take care of these patients and now we have an excellent clinic at City of Hope where we see patients together with dermatology and sometimes our radiation oncology colleagues we review the pathology slides we see patients from early stage disease to really late stages and and I also take care of these patients when they go through transplants. It's really a wonderful experience and I'm privileged to to be part of this uh, this team and to take care of these patients. That's awesome. Do you just want to give us a sense of what cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is to maybe some listeners that, that aren't familiar with this disease? Sure. So cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is basically it's lymphoma that arises in the skin. And just for clarification, uh, I want to say it out very clearly, lymphoma is a cancer. It is a cancer of blood type. It's a blood cancer uh, that arises generally in our either lymph nodes or bone marrow, but it can arise in any organ because lymphocytes basically circulate in our blood and they, they are our first line of defense, provide immunity for us against different viruses and uh, other foreign insults. So these are an important part of our immune system and they live everywhere. And so essentially this cancer can arise in any organ, uh, though mostly it will arise in lymph nodes and, and blood organs like liver, spleen, and bone marrow. 
Skin happens to be one of our largest lymphoid organs because it is our first line of defense. And there's, if you look at, at the skin under the microscope, you will see lymphocytes sort of at the edge of our skin. And if they become malignant, they will manifest themselves as lymphoma of the skin. And the patients will have skin lesions rather than enlarged lymph nodes or other um, manifestations of lymphoma. It is important to understand that skin lymphoma is not skin cancer. And it's very different than the common types of, you know, it's a different disease compared to, say, melanoma or other types of skin cancers that arise in the skin, but from skin tissue, from skin, skin cells. So that's the main difference. The other main difference between skin lymphoma and systemic lymphoma, or not, as, as, as you know, as I call the lymphomas that arise in other parts of the body, is that uh, cutaneous lymphomas will arise in the skin, and for the most part, they will stay in the skin, which makes them unique. Very rarely do we have patients with cutaneous lymphomas who actually have systemic involvement, other organs. Uh, sometimes you'll have lymph node involvement, but other than that, it's very rare to find patients with you know, disease that is in the lungs or liver or kidneys. And these are usually cases that are very advanced or they have changed or transformed into more aggressive forms. But the more common forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma tend to remain in the skin. Also, it is important to remember that cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is not one disease. There are many different subtypes, out of which mycosis fungoides is probably the most common. But you have other subtypes as well, including certain types of B-cell lymphomas. Cutaneous lymphomas generally tend to be T-cell subtype. That's why they're called CTCL. But I think they should really be called cutaneous lymphomas, out of which T-cells are actually the most common, but you can also have B-cell lymphomas on, of the skin that arise in the skin and, again, stay in the skin. Another sort of interesting uh, point to know is that systemic lymphomas, uh, the most common subtypes are B-cell subtypes, B as in boy, whereas in skin, uh, it's actually reversed. The more common subtypes are T-cell, T as in Tom, uh, rather than the B-cells. So that's another sort of unique feature of these cutaneous lymphomas that we need to be aware of. You said that CTCL describes many different disorders with various symptoms, outcomes, and treatment considerations. How is someone diagnosed with CTCL? So CTCL, remember, so now we're talking about T-cell lymphomas arising in the skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we should also clarify that sometimes B-cell lymphomas will also present the same way in the skin. If it's CTCL, it will mostly present itself as a skin lesion, a rash, redness, itching, maybe a bump. Most patients don't pay, you know, they're, they're very small, or, and they're also in um, areas that are not exposed to the sun, so they're hidden. Uh, most of the time you don't see them, and the patient may not be aware of them. Eventually they will start itching, or they, they, you know, they will seek attention, and the initial diagnoses are usually that it's an eczema, it's psoriasis, it's um, an allergic reaction to something. That's how sort of benign looking they can be or how common, they look very similar to other common skin lesions. There are some patients who present with more aggressive forms where the lesions are more sort of scary looking, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, They may be tumors, they may be ulcers. These patients will have a slightly more aggressive course. Uh, Obviously, they will seek medical attention a lot faster because they will be concerned about this thing that's popped up on any part, you know, on, on part of their skin. Uh, it may be painful, it may be, um, you know, it may be ulcerated and oozing. So there are different manifestations. There are also situations where a patient may actually have lymphomas inside their body, a systemic lymphoma, where they start to have skin lesions, like a, like a metastatic uh, sort of a situation. 
We are not talking about those situations at present time. Those patients will have a very different clinical outcome and they will be treated for their systemic disease and that'll take care of their skin lesions. But for cutaneous lymphomas, it's mostly a skin, um, skin lesion that pops up. And that's one of the reasons why diagnosis is so difficult, especially in early stages, because it looks for all in you know, all the world, like anything, a bug bite maybe, or an allergic reaction. And even uh, to an expert, uh, a dermatologist, unless you do a biopsy or start thinking of something more sinister, uh, they would usually not think of CTCL as the first diagnosis. The other thing to remember is it is not, fortunately, not a common disease. It is a rare disease. Uh, we don't see a lot of cases. You know, it's a very small percentage of overall lymphoma incidence. It's not something that most people think about, it, whereas skin rashes are very common. So uh, common things first. People will generally treat them as a common um, skin problem. What I tell patients is it's not wrong. If, you're, if your dermatologist misses it for the first time, they're not, you know, it's, it doesn't reflect that they are incompetent or anything. They are doing their job. The important thing is that if the lesion does not get better, obviously if this is cancer or lymphoma, it's not going to get better with, with just, or it will keep coming back. And that should be the cue that there is something wrong, uh, something more needs to be done, and it needs more attention. And at that point, maybe consider a biopsy or go see a different specialist. And even for the dermatologist, um, they, they probably start thinking that maybe something else should be thought of, that the differential should be, you know, that's when they really start thinking that this may be a, a, a more, you know, a different thing and maybe a CTCL. Uh, and, and they would start thinking of a biopsy and looking for signs and symptoms of, of this other disease. Sure. And do some people stay with their dermatologist for treatment, or do most people get treatment from a hematologist, oncologist, since it is lymphoma, a blood cancer? Uh, that's a great question. It really varies. It really, it really varies with the with the expertise that you have available at that time. So, in terms of experts in cutaneous T cell lymphoma, we certainly have dermatologists who are experts who basically focus and have spent their lives looking and thinking about this disease and treating patients, and they would definitely be part of the treatment team. And they, I know dermatologists who treat you know, almost all stages of the disease unless the patients require chemotherapy. On the other hand, there are hematologists, oncologists, there may be a situation where the patient gets referred to them very early in the disease course because the dermatologist says lymphoma, you know, I don't want to deal with this, go, go and take care, you know, go to a hematologist, oncologist. What we need to remember is that, or, or what we need to realize is that this really is a very special disease and it really kind of straddles both disciplines of dermatology and hematology oncology and we really need to find the right expert it doesn't have to be the right specialist it does have to be the right expert who knows this disease uh, we don't certainly don't want to send our patients to an oncologist who's going to start giving them chemotherapy thinking oh lymphoma you know let's give them the most common chemotherapy for lymphoma certainly not the case because these diseases can be treated with skin directed therapy for many many years before the patient needs anything um, systemic intravenous or even oral and certainly long before they need any kind of chemotherapy which again is you know for trained hematologists oncologists is very hard to accept because we are trained to treat these conditions with aggressive chemotherapy that's our job and again this being a rare disease most people will treat the common things first. So uh, we need to make sure the, that the oncologist understands that this is not to be treated like systemic lymphoma, that they need to collaborate with their dermatology colleagues and make sure that the patients have the benefit of, their, of the dermatologist's expertise as well. 
Secondly, what we need to understand is that these, these are skin lesions and they, there is skin involvement and there is skin care that can help the patient, which again, if I wasn't working in this field, I wouldn't know. I mean, I wouldn't know how to prescribe the right moisturizer, how to take care of their itching, how to take care of some of the skin issues that arise, wounds, for example. So it is always good to have a collaboration. And in each community, uh, I think it's, it's for patients should try to find a center that treats these conditions rather than a specific dermatologist or oncologist. And just a plug for Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation, which is, you know, has been wonderful in supporting these patients and, and supporting us as well in our, in our work. They can help you find the right place wherever you are in the country, or the world for that matter. So something that we found interesting, here at the LLS we have something known as the LLS community. And what it is, it's an online platform for patients to speak with mm -hmm. each other in order to get support, get information, you know, in regards to their own diagnosis. Now, we usually post a question of the day. And one question we ask the, you know, we ask the users who had or who was diagnosed with CTCL. And we found that those out of the 12 who entered their race, three patients or 25% were African-Americans. And that was compared to the 4.8% of community members, of course, those who voluntarily disclosed their race, who were African-American. So to kind of further follow that thought, we were thinking, okay, well, let's see the incident rate. Let's see kind of where this presents itself. And in an abstract on ncbi.gov, the National Center for Biotechnology Information regarding demographic patterns of CTCL incidents, it explained that while CTCL primarily affects Caucasian individuals older than 55 years old, they confirmed that it presents at a younger age with more advanced disease stages in African-American and Hispanic individuals. So you found that to be extremely interesting. Is, that, is there more research on that? Or is there a reason for that? I, I can't tell you if there's a specific reason. Uh, there are certain theories about it. First of all, um, darker skinned individuals uh, may not see the rashes as easily, uh, you know, a red rash or an erythema certainly is more prominent on fair skin. That may be one very simple reason why lesions, by the time they become, and they're not always itchy, so become symptomatic or somebody wants to seek attention that they have their more advanced stage. But that may be a very simplistic explanation. The other um, explanation may have to do with disease biology that we are trying to look into to see what are the differences in, in the patients, different patients' diseases. And certainly, we are now in the era of genetic uh, testing and genetic, uh, genetic sequencing, uh, and I'm sure that this kind of information can help us figure out what leads to the cause of this disease. First of all, we don't know what causes it, and that there may be certain environmental factors or other things that we will eventually learn about that may be contributing to the onset of this disease. Um, and it may also explain these racial differences. Certainly, we find um, racial differences in other types of cancers and lymphomas as well. So there is certainly a, a biologic basis for this as well. Uh, what I find in our practice is certainly patients who come to us who are African Americans, for example, have more some of the more aggressive forms of the disease. They have what's called folliculotropic MF, for example. I find that to be more just kind of I can't say actual numbers, but just in practice, that seems to be more common. And that tends to have a more aggressive course. Now, remember, we are a specialty center. So I, I don't think what we see at City of Hope is reflective of what the community sees. Because we will see patients who have been referred to us. So that may be one of the reasons we are seeing more aggressive disease. And then that tends to be somewhat 
You see the you know, I, I don't think that reflects the racial differences in the community of, of the incidence of this disease. But yes, I have heard of that. I also know that patients, um, African American patients particularly have a worse prognosis. Again, I have actually seen that. Uh, they seem to have a higher percentage of patients who will have a more aggressive course because there is a small percentage of patients with CTCL who actually have a very aggressive course, which can be lethal within a few years of diagnosis. They just progress very quickly. Even the skin, they tend to have more transformed disease, and then it gets into their system, into their organs, and obviously then it's a different game. And we've had some very aggressive, seen very aggressive courses in young patients who are non-Caucasians. I wish I had a better explanation than that. So we're looking into it. Yeah, and it's also interesting that in the United States, there's not a lot of young people diagnosed with cutaneous lymphoma. Um, They say like 5% maybe before the age of 20. But in other countries, in other parts of the world, there are a lot more patients that are children um, Mm -hmm. with this disease. So we do know that it arises out of, possibly arises out of a setting of inflammation. And certainly when you look at the biopsies of patients with cutaneous lymphoma, you see evidence of a lot of inflammation. So psoriasis, for example, also precedes a lot of these patients. So maybe there are some environmental factors that may be contributing to these differences. And we really don't know the cause of cutaneous lymphoma. No, we don't. No, people have looked into viruses, infections. You know, again, inflammation. Um, there's no real consistent finding that can explain any of it. Yeah. Right. And jumping back to treatment and kind of seeking centers for treatment, what what are the available treatment options for CTCL patients, and what is the goal of treatment for CTCL? The goal of the treatment is is control of disease. Uh, so I wish I could say the goal of treatment would be cure. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have curative treatments yet. And by cure, I mean, so that usually scares patients right away. Oh, you're not curing. Cure me. I'm going to die. We need to take a pause back and think about this. So cure means really something that's going to treat a disease at whatever time period, and then it never comes back. In my mind, that is cure. Uh, And there's a lot of diseases we treat that we don't cure, for example, diabetes, heart disease. Um, So if you think of it in in those terms, we actually have a lot of treatments for cutaneous lymphomas. And I always reassure patients that 90% of the time they will have a normal life. It's not going to affect their life expectancy. They will need treatment, though, for the most part of their life. There may be times when the disease becomes, goes into remission, is very quiet, but most of the time they will need some kind of treatment. With this approach, we then have to think about how to start treating these patients and how to maintain treating them for the rest of their life. So we don't want to run out of all our options right away. So think of a tool bag, right? You have um, maybe 20 tools in it. So you want to pick, pick the right tool for the right time, but not you know, try to keep the big ones for later on. As I said, there are patients who have an aggressive course, and again, a small percentage, I would say about 10 to 15%, and there are also patients who will slowly progress into a more aggressive stage. So that aggressive stage can happen early or late. Again, factors what determine that are still unclear. In those cases, we need aggressive therapy. For the most part, though, we can start with very simple skin-directed treatments, and that can certainly you know, take care of their skin lesions for a long time. They may not completely clear, but if their symptoms of itching or discomfort or disfiguration get better, I think that's a reasonable goal for therapy at present time. We're hoping that we will have better treatments and we can actually tell patients we're going to cure you. And certainly there's a lot of research into that. But for the moment, uh, the treatments are what I call palliative um, and can get 
most patients into remission or clear their disease. Since it's, it's skin disease, we don't need scans or anything. We just look at their skin and see if they're doing better or not. And that can buy a lot of time. And then um, also even systemic treatments are non-chemotherapy based. A lot of systemic treatments um, that are even approved by the FDA, for example, one of the common drugs is, uh, is targretin, which is a retinoid, a vitamin A derivative, and has excellent response rates in CTCL. Uh, things like interferon, which is an immune modulatory agent. Um, there are things, um, other very, you know, sort of non-chemotherapy based biologic agents that can help treat this disease for a long time. And eventually, most patients will require, you know, if it's progressive, they will require IV or systemic therapies. And chemotherapy and, and stem cell transplant is really for a very small percentage of patients who either have transformed disease or meaning it has become more aggressive. It, biologically, it has become from an indolent, slow-growing disease to a more aggressive disease, or if they have they develop metastases. Again, a small group, of, a small percentage of patients. So um, that, that's kind of the overview of therapies for CTCL. And the transplant, would that be a transplant from their own cells or from a donor? Uh, it has to be from a donor. We have tried doing transplants from their own self, and we found that it doesn't work. Uh, most patients relapse pretty quickly. So in, in certain groups of patients, a transplant from a donor has been curative. Um, so that is a curative therapy, but it comes at a big cost. A, a donor transplant can be toxic. You require immune suppression. It, can, it has a lot of side effects and, and disease-modifying um, effects, I, I would say. Uh, because your your quality of life can be vastly affected by the by that kind of transplant, so we do uh, not try we don't try to do that um, in most patients. <laughs> we can sure. avoid it. I know we always educate our patients and caregivers or our entire audience on clinical trials. That's something that sure. you know usually when you ask somebody, what are the three words that come to mind? They say a placebo or you know guinea <laughs> yes. pig or last resort. So we try to amplify the point that clinical trials are extremely crucial in identifying effective drugs and determining optimal doses for patients. Are there any drug developments that are currently being tested in clinical trials for various stages of CTCL? Yes, thank you, Alicia. That's an excellent point. I think that trying to explain a clinical trial to a patient is certainly very challenging. So the first thing, as I always do with my patients, is try to reassure them this is not the end of the world. And, and again, clinical trials are really there to... We rarely do placebo trials, first of all, as you know. But they're really there for us to really provide innovative treatments to our patients. And when, when they start thinking about it in those terms, um, it becomes more acceptable to them. There are a lot of uh, approaches right now for treating CTCL. And there are a lot of clinical trials out there. I think some of the most prominent ones right now are are really, as a field in oncology, we're moving towards immunotherapies. We're trying to figure out how we can harness our immune system to really fight the cancers. And this is this is the disease model for that. Even before we had the newer immunotherapies, we had interferon, which is a very effective therapy for CTCL, and is it is an immunotherapy. It modifies our immune system. So now that we have a better understanding of how the immune system interacts with the cancer, where we have a bunch of trials, um, we, you know, you've heard of drugs out there already approved by the FDA, certainly now in trials with the CTCL, like pembrolizumab, for example. Uh, but there's also other immune approaches. One of the ones that we are finding very successful at City of Hope is the anti-CD47 antibody, which is a again an immune therapy, but it 
it doesn't target the, the T cells, it tends to empower the macrophages, uh, which is also part of our immune system to become more active against the cancer. It's sort of an, our innate immune uh, system being activated. That's uh, showing positive results and has a number of those that this trial many will be open at many centers. There is also uh, targeted agents that are being looked at. Uh, now that we are understanding, we have we have genomic understanding of tumors or genomic mapping of tumors. We should say we don't understand it all yet. We can actually figure out which genes have gone wrong or which pathways in the tumor cell growth have gone wrong in a particular cancer, and we can try to reverse that with targeted agents. One such um, group of promising agents for CTCL are the PI3 kinases, um, and these are actually oral drugs. These are pills. So I think that the, the future is very promising. If we can figure out a way to really, well, first we've got to figure out what's gone wrong, and we are getting there, and the second thing is how can we fix it? We may be closer to a cure, but I say that with a caveat, um, what most people need to understand, it's not going to be a one-shot deal. Cancer cells are very smart, and they use multiple pathways to sort of outsmart our bodies so that uh, to allow themselves to grow uncontrollably, and it will require multiple approaches to try to treat, you know, try to cure any cancer and CTCL as well. So a combination of all these approaches specific to specific patients, this is where personalized medicine comes in. Maybe somebody's tumor has one pathway that's wrong combined, you know, versus somebody else. And if we could find a cheap way to figure that out, we can certainly target therapies based on their personalized tumors. That's where personalized medicine comes in. I think that's where the future is. Right now for treatment, since it sounds like it's more of you know, the chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Are people consistently on treatment or if they're in a, let's say, remission period, do they get off of treatment and then move back onto a treatment when it comes back? So look, everybody's course is different and everybody's goal of treatment is different. So, you know, there, there, there are patients who are okay with a few lesions, you know, and, and those patients we could just watch for a while or take them off if they've finished a course of therapy and they're left with a few lesions, you know, they may not want to start another treatment right away. For most patients, they do require constant treatment, and there is the concept of maintenance in this disease as well. We've known that from a long time, even from the, you know, even when we treat patients with photophoresis or when we used to treat them with, well, we still do, but when, before we had newer therapies, we would always talk about maintenance. I think that has fallen that's less talked about now. But I used to always tell patients that you will need some kind of maintenance. If the photophoresis has taken care of your Cesare syndrome, maybe we reduce the frequency to once once a month or once every two months and just kind of maintain that. And the data, again, is very unclear because this is such a heterogeneous disease, whether that actually made an impact or not. But most patients felt that it, it did something. We also do some, you know, maintenance with things like romadepsin, for example. Um, there is, you know, we give it to them once every month or once every two months to sort of maintain a remission state or whatever state they've achieved, uh, the minimal state of their disease. And then if it starts to progress, then we, we um, go back on it. So there is, um, you know, everybody's different. Um, but most patients will need some treatment and, and at least some follow-up with their dermatologist or their oncologist, whoever their team is, to make sure that nothing is coming back and that we can target it as soon as it starts to show signs of you know, needing clinical treatment. 
it also keeps uh, keeps them informed of any new clinical trials that may be coming by. So it is important to keep keep in touch with somebody of this, you know, in this on this team wherever you are. Sure. And you mentioned that some patients may be fine with a few lesions. Yeah. In that point, how important is it for patients to communicate effectively with their team? You know, being vocal about what they're okay with or what they would like more treatment or more understanding on. Or how can you encourage patients you know, to speak openly and to speak effectively with their team? I think that's the most important thing. You know, confidence and the ability to discuss things with your, with your physician and your team is the most important thing. If you don't have a confidence in your team, if you don't, if you feel you can't say what you want to, I think that's not the right team for you. I, I always encourage that. And certainly patients want to seek second opinions and whatnot. That's fine. That, that should be encouraged as much as possible. I think it's very important for patients to voice their issues or their concerns or their thoughts to us. We, we do try to encourage that in our meetings with them. We also, sometimes patients have some reluctance to say things to their physicians. I, I tried maybe and that takes some time to get that confidence. So we always have a social worker on our team, and we also have nurse practitioners on our team. And sometimes patients will tell them things that they don't want us to, I don't know, for whatever reason, don't want to tell us. <laughs> so um, that's why having the having a team approach is, is so useful. It's not just a team of physicians. It's also a team of um, support staff and ancillary services. Social work, I think, is very important because these are chronic diseases. It does... Patients do need to make time to come to their doctor's visit or their treatment visit, whatever. And, you know, I, I know that if I had to do that on a regular basis, uh, I would be concerned about my job. How am I going to, my family, how am I going to take care of the things I normally need to do? Because this, I'm telling pa my patient, this is a chronic disease. You live with this. So don't change your lifestyle. So then we need to make, we, you know, if they need treatment, we need to make uh, some concessions for that. And that's where social work comes in very handy. So on our team, we have a social worker, uh, a wonderful young lady who, who helps our patients through these difficult challenges, very real challenges, not just their disease. Sure, that's great. We definitely believe in the team approach, and we right. do hear from a lot of patients that they're worried about telling you um, about any side effects um, because their medication is working and they're scared that maybe if they tell you that um, they're having a bad effect towards their medication, you might take them off of it. Um, and you meaning doctors. You know, <laughs> yes. You know, I understand. <laughs> I understand. I mean, I, I, think, I think we should encourage patients to tell us. We need to know what the side effects are. We need to know how our patients are suffering. You know, we do our best to guess that from blood work and, and their symptoms, but it would be, if there is something they want to tell us, it's, it's very important. Our job, you know, I'm not there to put patients on treatment or put patients on trials. Um, I'm there to help patients. And, and if there is a problem that can be fixed, maybe we change the dose, maybe we change the frequency, maybe we hold treatment for a while to help them get over that side effect, I, I would be, you know, that, that's my job. To, to figure that out, obviously without getting their disease out of control, but right, right. but um, but please, you know, when if you get a chance to please encourage your 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 audience to to do to do discuss their problems, their feelings, whatever it is that's bothering them with their doctor. That's what they that's what we are there for. Absolutely, exactly. On one of our episodes, we had a behavioral scientist who works within the realm of of, of healthcare, and their right. research was was almost. It was almost staggering in regards to how many people, you know, either thought the doctor knew 
what they're what, what they're experiencing based off of this diagnosis, or felt as if they couldn't yes. say anything because if I say anything, they'll be taken off a treatment that may be working, and. It, there's so it's so important to have that conversation and be able to feel like comfortable with the people who are treating you. I mean, these are the people who who need to you need to know everything. I mean, this is the mm-hmm. people who are putting together your treatment plan. So I think right. I think that's one of the reasons why we kind of strive and strive to make that a point, you know, for our listeners and for our audience because that's what helps to get the best outcome. I mean, research shows that as well. Absolutely. I mean, I always tell my patients you and I will get to know, know each other very well <laughs> because uh, this is a long-term relationship. This is a chronic disease. And I mean, I have had patients who are still in touch with, I've changed coasts. I used to be in New York. I came to California. I've been back and forth a few times and I have patients who stay in touch with me. I still talk to them. They come see me sometimes, uh, even if it's on the other side of the coast because this is a chronic disease. And it is one of those situations where you do get to know the person, their families very well. So that's the advantage of being in this rare disease, you really get to know people as opposed to taking care of 25 patients with breast cancer every day, which is also another challenge, but not for me. Right, right. And there's there's a lot of quality of life issues surrounding um, cutaneous lymphoma. Um, Correct. Just, you know, I guess the biggest one, itching, right? Right. Quality of life is, uh, I think we are trying to understand that more and more again lots of research needs to be done is being done Uh, we are trying to put quality of life questionnaires in um, all our research studies so but quality of life is very subjective right it's it's the patient has to tell us and certainly this this is a skin disease Um, cosmetics is up there you know you don't want to be looking rashy (laughs) you don't want to have red red lesions all over your face Uh, there is certainly a stigma attached to it no matter how educated we are I mean you don't want to be seen like that in the supermarket or wherever you're going there are sometimes um, in spite of what you read we have young patients (laughs) we have quite a few young patients um, where where looks are important and the quality of your skin and itching and dryness and flaking and ulcers all of these are really important symptoms that then contribute to your quality of life now we again this is where this multidisciplinary approach really comes in itching i think is one of the worst symptoms you can have and unfortunately this is the least we have the least amount of treatments for it that are actually effective so anything that we can prescribe is not going to be enough i think what I learned from my dermatology colleagues, I mean, from, from my medical training, it was gives things like antihistamines. We now have things like, you know, H3 blockers that can help itching, but really it doesn't work forever. They taught me a few things. So skin care is very important, moisturizing. So again, as a hematologist, oncologist, I had never even remembered to mention that for my patients, but my dermatology colleagues come into the room and they talk about moisturizers for 15 minutes. Uh, bleach baths, another mm. way to reduce itching. Again, a scary, I was like, what? <laughs> when I first heard about that, a bleach bath? What are you talking about? But it makes a lot of sense because the itching, um, we know there is data that itching is made worse by bacterial infections. And certainly getting rid of that bacterial population by using bleach baths once or twice a week. Uh, and there is, it's, there's a formula, I don't want to misspeak on it, but you know you can find that out from websites and also we have, uh, dermatology will tell you, it's a small amount of bleach in a tub of water. It's basically like a swimming pool, you know, when you go to the swimming pool. Um, and that has been, 
effective for some patients in reducing the itching and the flaking. And then, of course, keeping uh, your showers limited to 10 minutes. There are a lot of things that we can, proper wound care. Um, again, another important part of quality of life. One of the things I want to mention is um, this is, you know, I've learned a lot about, uh, again, with from my dermatology colleagues about compounded medicines and, and ointments using lidocaine and silvadine and even morphine for painful wounds. And unfortunately, insurance doesn't cover that. And um, there is, but they are effective and very mm -hmm. helpful for patients. So that's something that maybe we need to lobby for, yes. <laughs> for our patients. Yeah. But uh, there, there are some ways to try to help these patients that are expensive for them. Out-of-pocket costs can be quite, quite high. So, uh, but certainly, you know, our, our job is to try to figure out what, how we can make our patients' lives better. That's the, that's the bottom line. And uh, quality of life is very important. So we are trying to figure out how we can improve that. But there's other issues too. You know, there is um, time to the time spent in the doctor's office. There is uh, photophoresis is like four hours. You know, six oh, hours. Wow. Uh, so treatment time is is also important. And again, trying to address some of those issues, getting therapies available to them closer to home, cut down on travel time, having you know, making sure they're they're seen on time and not sitting in the waiting room for hours. Those kinds of things also contribute to their quality of life, so they can maintain their life outside of the doctor's office. Sure. And are there other side effects from the treatments? I know that, you know, typical chemotherapy has um, side effects, but photophoresis? Uh, photophoresis is actually one of the best therapies I know because it really doesn't have that many side effects. There is some fatigue, but you are sitting in a chair for four to six hours. That could contribute to the fatigue. Um, but most patients, you know, it doesn't increase your risk of infections. It doesn't cause nausea, vomiting. Some people will have mild nausea with, when they give them the photosensitizer, but it's not oral, so it, it shouldn't matter uh, that much. And then one other side effect from photophoresis is anemia. So they do need some, they lose some blood with each, each procedure. So keeping track of that and making sure they get enough iron and supplements is all we need to do. But otherwise, it's a very safe therapy. So the only side effect is time. Okay. <laughs> it's time, it's, it, yeah, it's a time sink. Yeah. Um, other therapies, there are, you know, there's fatigue with, with things like interferon. There is uh, some of the other, the, you know, the newer biologics like romadepsin and varenostat. Fatigue can be an issue. Nausea can be an issue. Again, those are the, we need to know if the patient's suffering so we can manage those appropriately. For romadepsin, for example, um, uh, after the initial few treatments, once the disease starts to respond, I reduce the frequency of dosing so they have fewer side effects. Things like tigretin, for example, has uh, side effects of causing uh, hyper, high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia, and thyroid issues. So every agent has side effects and they need to be managed appropriately, but that, you know that's 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 why you need want to make sure that your team is aware of what's going on, and then we can do the right blood work and whatever is needed to make sure that gets done. That's so true. And earlier you mentioned the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. In addition to yes. that foundation and free publications that we have here at the LLS about lymphoma, and you know the online resources we have like chats and the community, which is what I mentioned earlier, are there other resources mm -hmm. out there that you? recommend for your patients that we may not have covered today? Um, yeah, another one is Lymphoma Research Foundation. They also have a big CTCL. Uh, we partner with the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation with them. 
I think you mentioned the big, the big ones, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, t I tell patients not to go to the internet. Yeah. Because that's just, you know, just a random internet Google search because that's going to scare the heck out of you. So I always mention LLS, LRF, and CLF. Those are my three go main go-tos. Uh, because I know the information is correct. I know you guys keep it up to date. We contribute to that information, not not me personally, but, you know, experts. So my colleagues do, and, and um, so I, I know that information is correct, so that's, that's the best resource for patients. For transplant, I, I refer them to the uh, BMT um, websites, bmt.org websites, so they can learn about that from there. Doctor, what are the major concerns you hear from your patients? So they, you know, the patients always ask about, they come in very scared. So the first visit is they've learned they have some kind of lymphoma. They've been told it's a rare disease. That's very common. That's the most common thing. So the first few meetings actually are just about trying to reassure them and trying to educate them about the course of this disease. I mean, I've drawn graphs. I've drawn, you know, brought out survival curves, whatever it takes to kind of make them feel comfortable that, yes, they're not going to die tomorrow. And believe me, that takes a while. Wow. <laughs> they come in with that, uh, especially they're coming to City of Hope, they're coming to see an sure. oncologist, you know, so it just scares the heck out of them. Right. Um, that's one major theme, I think, making them understand the course of the disease. And then the, the second thing is the clinical trials issue is really, I mean, I'm glad that you have this forum of trying to teach people about clinical trials. That is a huge problem. Um, and, I, and I really honestly think if I had CTCL, I would go on a trial because I know the good that comes out of it. I know the bad that comes out of it, too, but I also know the, the good that comes out of it. But that goes with any treatment. I mean, right. I'm not, so those things are kind of important for people to understand. And then the third thing is just kind of trying to get the right physician to take care of you. It doesn't matter what the specialty is, really. And, and you really need a team. So those are the things I would emphasize again. I think it's good that you're highlighting the team approach because many patients feel that they only have 15 minutes um, with you, the physician, and they want to make the most out of those 15 minutes. So, of course, we try to educate as to you know how to make the most of those 15 minutes, but not every patient has the other people to go to, the social worker, mm -hmm. the nurse, somebody else that can assist them. And that's really important, um, and that's really important, I think, with any of our diagnoses, that team right. approach, because then you get, um, hopefully, you know, a, a full picture of the person, the patient, um, and their needs and their desires and everything that's going on, like you mentioned, just, right. is it hard to get here, you know? Is there a better time in the day um, to get here? not just the specific, uh, you know, this is how your blood came out, this is, you know, how we're looking at your skin today, and um, these are the treatments, but how does it all impact the person? Absolutely, uh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's certainly something we have to um, be more considerate of, and in this time, in this day and age of kind of cost-cutting and efficiencies, I think we're going to have to come up with new ways to make sure that our patients are supported. And in the end, what I want to say is it's really a privilege. Uh, people ask me, why do you do this? And I do it because I get to know people. That's really why I do it. It's, I've, I've met some wonderful people in my career, some really wonderful patients and their families and caretakers. And you see the best of humanity, you see the worst of humanity. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I always say.
Right. You really see the best of people if they want to, if they want to come up to the plate, so to speak. <laughs> right. Right. So. right. And for anybody listening as well, we know that when you go to an oncology office, like you mentioned earlier, there's a level of anxiety that goes along with you. And for anyone listening on that episode who wants to be prepared before their visit, because we always say, you know, write your questions down or, you know, bring somebody with you just in case you forget something. And so anybody who's listening, they can visit www.lls.org forward slash what to ask for printable question guides, and they're arranged by um, by certain topics. Of course, it's not a, a one-stop shop, but it allows you to kind of have a, a structure or a beginning point for what you can ask without forgetting those questions. Yes, great point. All right, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Zane, for sharing your expertise with us regarding CTCL. We're sure that our listeners will learn as much as we did. And for anyone listening as well who Wants more information about the resources that were discussed on this episode, be sure to check out the description of this episode below. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.